much love. I am woman, watch me grow. See me standing toe to toe as I spread my loving arms across the land. But I'm still an embryo with a long, long way to go until I make my brother understand. Everybody now, yes, I'm wise, but it's wisdom for the pain. It's episode four, season four, Ravage Love. I noticed you weren't singing along. I was not. Anyway, that's just my way of telling you I got the Helen Ready haircut. Anyway, hi, Julie. How are you? Happy International Women's Day. Happy, happy International Women's Day. It's International Women's Week as well. So if the men in your life are telling you we get one day, they're full of shit. We get a whole week and soon we'll get a whole month. And before we know it, we'll get it. Take back the night? Fuck that. Take back the whole goddamn calendar. That's my speed. One is one is men's internet international men's day. Uh, one is it's a take back the it, bar. Um yeah. take international men's day actually exists and it's in November. <laughs> and I love it when men make that argument because I'm always just like, it actually does exist and you never do anything on that day, so stop pretending. Uh and it's <laughs> yeah, the perfect sign. Call post. Helen ready. No. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is International Women's Day, and that means I chose a book written by women about women. What? How did you take this week's theme? Oh, I read a, a I want, I dare I say seminal uh, work, but um, I I read a, a classic Ooh, I like it. I did last year. But before we get started, Julie, um, you know how. People with trauma mm-hmm. sometimes have like a memory mm-hmm. that just kind of comes to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I had that this morning, actually, um, of the day I realized I was a woman. And Ooh. I wanted to share it with you. Please do. Buckle up. I'm buckled. Okay. So when I was 14, I, <laughs> um, I, my, English class took the like trip to Stratford, Ontario to go watch theater and stuff. And I had worked my butt off. I saved every penny, all my babysitting money, all of it. Cause when you go to Stratford, you also get to go to the Eaton center. And that meant I was going to get to go shopping uninhibited by my mother over my shoulder. Amazing. Um, I was going to be able to buy whatever I wanted. So 14-year-old me with all my pals, uh, we went to the mall and there was a piercing kiosk at the mall. And uh, I got my belly button pierced. I don't know why they didn't stop me, like why they didn't check my ID (laughs) at the Eaton Center. But I got my belly button pierced. And um, of course, true to form, I got a belly button bar that said sex on it um, and was super fucking proud. And my mom found out, but I I was so like mentally ill at the time. I was constantly like taking too much Tylenol and shit. You know how we did back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Those of us who were from divorced homes. Um, And I remember classic overdose um i'm there in the hospital and my mom had found out about my belly button ring and she was pissed and then i remember she's like holding my hand and she's like you're gonna be okay renee 
And I remember just saying, so can I keep the belly button ring? (laughs) And she just looked at me like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) And that's when I knew I was a woman, Julie. Because I had made a grown-up decision to not only get my belly button pierced, but with a word for a thing I never had. Um, And then in defiance, I took too many Tylenols. So if that isn't what womanhood looked like to millennials, I don't know what is. Um, Now, having shared my story with the world, I hope hope to God my daughters never do. I don't care if they get, get, get 40 belly button rings. I don't give a shit. Just don't take too many Tylenols. That's it. That's it. That's all. That's it. That's it. Yeah, you get 40 rings in your navel, girls. Girl. You've heard it here. Yeah. (laughs) Go for it. Oh, my God. It is. um, Happy International (laughs) Women's Day to me, the real feminist icon. Thank you. But it makes your story (laughs) makes you think about um, the origin story of Mean Girls. I don't know if you know that story. I don't. Okay, so Tina Fey read the book yeah. um, Queen Bees and Wannabes, which was about like lateral violence and basically how young women are like really nasty to each other. And okay. she read that book and it kind of inspired her to write Mean Girls. And she did focus groups with young women to, again, try to make it as like realistic to their experience as possible. And the thing that kept coming up in all of the focus groups was when she would ask them, well, how did you know that you were like a young woman? Like, how did you know that you were like, you know, she assumed they were going to talk about periods or like first kisses or something. And almost all of them said getting catcalled. Uh, And like getting catcalled was the realization that like, oh, I can't just move through the world invisible because I now look like a woman and therefore this is what it means to be a woman is men yell at you from cars Mm. and how profound that like simplistic, but how profound that is like, not just to her, but also, you know, a hundred percent, my experience, like 100% my experience of being like, Oh, I am now seen. (laughs) I am now seen Mm. in the world. And that means that I have to cover up. And that means I have to, you know, like me wearing a tank top and short shorts was fine when I was a girl. But now that I'm a young woman, I have to like be cognizant of the male gaze basically. Um, You know what though? Like I was, I wasn't continued to be a fat kid and uh, I was, I always felt too seen mm. always. And I remember being like nine like the the age of my eldest daughter that she is now. And I lived in a really small town, Moorwood, Ontario. And there was less than 300 people there when I lived there. And behind my home was like a road. It was like around the block. Mm-hmm. And that's what that was as far as I was allowed to bike unless I was going to someone's house. It was like I go around the block. And there were houses on that road. And I remember just biking and like somebody yelling at me, like a young man from one of the houses being like, you should come over. We'll have sex. And I was literally a child. And I didn't think that was weird. I was just like, that's uncomfortable. But like, I was always seen always. Mm. And always like, it was always like, Renee, you can't wear, like, I couldn't wear short shorts. Like I couldn't wear a crop top. Like I couldn't wear those things ever. So I had a very different experience where it was like the older I got, the less attractive I became and the less cat calls I got. In fact, the last time I got cat called was 
I had my son with me. He was really little. And there was, there were these guys in just a car and I was walking with them and they were parked next to my car and they, they yelled at me and I had Liam with me and I was like, this is going to be a great opportunity to show him that this doesn't fucking stand. And so I went over, started banging on their car. Yes, you did. I was like, I was like, the fuck, the fuck. I was like, is this how you talk to people? So you talk to people with their kids? And I was like banging on their car and they were like, we're sorry, we're sorry. And they drove away. And I guess word spread because nobody hollering at me. <laughs> you were like, so- today is the day that we're going to have no scrubs and you are not going to hang out at the side of your best friend's ride yelling at me, sir. That was it. And that's why your that son is now a feminist icon. So he is. And you know what? That day, Left Eye Lopez just smiled down on me. She really blessed me that day. She really did. (laughs) Bless my family. (laughs) But do you have like, I mean, maybe a less uh, terribly psychotic (laughs) memory of when you realize that you're like, this is I'm going to I'm a woman now. Was it being catcalled like in Sudbury or like? I think it was. Honestly, I think it was the realize because I've always I'm very lucky that yeah, I was like always a tall, thin, blonde lady, but also really lucky that I grew up in a family that was very clear that nudity does not mean sex, that like and I remember my mom vividly saying like if you can't be naked in your own home, like where can you be naked? So like there was no conflation of like not showing your skin, you know what I mean? With like all of those things. So, but the world had different views on it. And so, yeah, I vividly remember. And in fact, I mean, if you want a dark, dark example, you know, I do. <laughs> when I moved to Ottawa. So again, I grew up in a family that was, you know, not perfect in a lot of ways, but um, great in many ways. And that included, like, I really didn't, I mean, I was self-conscious because I'm a woman in the world, but like, I wasn't like very much acutely I didn't really care about what I look like. I wasn't vain. I didn't because I just grew up in a family that was like, live your life. So I moved to Ottawa to go to university. I was 18. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I lived off campus because my family was like, residence is rapey. So that was kind of my first indication of like, okay, I'm about to enter in a world that is very different than my small town. Um, and I remember when I first moved to Ottawa, there was a woman, her name was Ardeth Woods, and she was murdered on a bike path walking path heading close to my neighborhood and close to the university that I went to and it was horrifying I mean it was like a complete stereotype of violence against women it was a stranger attacking a woman on a bike path it was just like and she was by all accounts really lovely young woman um and I remember so this is you know going on they hadn't caught him they still haven't caught him which is horrifying because it's been almost 20 years and he's fucking part of QAnon now right a hundred percent or the fucking convoy or the fucking freedom convoy um and my roommate who was a woman we were walking downtown ottawa and it was getting late and it was summer and if anyone knows ottawa in the summer it's hot as fuck and so for me i was like of course i'm gonna wear short shorts and a tank top like it's hot why would i not do that and i had my hair down And I have like naturally blonde hair and I had waist length blonde hair until I was like in my early 20s. And so like it would get a lot of attention. And my roommate and I were walking down the street and this old man just started like aggressively catcalling us. And 
I was uncomfortable. Like I wasn't like, ha ah, like loving it. But my roommate turned to me right away and she was like, tie your hair up. And it wasn't even like, he didn't even say anything about my hair. I just remember her turning to me right away and being like, tie your hair up. And her thinking that me being a young woman with short shorts and my hair down was drawing attention. And I just was like, okay. And just kind of tried to, and then later on it really bothered me. And I talked to her about it. I was like, oh, I can't believe that happened. Well, and she just was like, yeah, but like, you know, we can't be too safe. Like, look what happened to Ardeth. Like she was just biking on a bike path in the middle of the day. And so like, we can't just expect that we can walk around in shorts and our hair down and not attract. And it was such a, like, I couldn't articulate why that bothered me. You know, when you have those feelings where you're like, that doesn't feel right, but I don't, I don't have the language. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And then, you know, I studied women's studies and became the feminist that I am today and sort of was able to contextualize that. But I just remember being like, damn, like back home, I could wear my hair down and walk around and be left the fuck alone. But now that I'm in a big city where like violence against women is quote unquote real, even though it very much was in my old community. And that my roommate, who was the same age as me, who, you know, was like also a thin white lady, like that her instinct right away was like that I had brought it on myself in some way Oops. or that like it's just because we were being reckless. And by reckless, it was like. 9 p.m. we're walking to a bus stop in like a democratic society like it just it always stuck with me even though I mean I'm sure you can also recount like a thousand microaggressions or a thousand times men have been gross to you but you know there's just those ones that like stick with you and that one was I think the connection between like oh my god if I don't tie up my hair maybe I'll be the next Ardeth Woods which is fucking idiotic but like you just cling to anything Right? Because everything is so scary. And when you're a young woman, you're being told that like you are prey. And so you have to act accordingly. And I was like, but I hate this. But then also, what am I going to do? Put myself in harm's way just to prove a point? Grow your hair longer. (laughs) Right? I was like, I'm like a Rapunzel this shit. Crystal Gale. Yeah, use it as a whip. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I have to ask, since obviously this roommate didn't make the cut to Brett. Best friend mode, like, oh, dad. Uh, Now, have they shown up for uh, bystander intervention with Julie? (laughs) I have not heard from this person in two decades. We had a very uh, awful roommate breakup situation um, because she... uh, slept with my brother and it got weird (laughs) and we all lived together so it got real weird but um yeah so I have no idea if this particular individual has ever attended one of my trainings uh your brother is a handsome young man I mean my brother's six foot six and like could have been a professional athlete if he had tried like as if he had pursued it but he didn't want to um oh yeah my brother is like a very very good looking man but ironically my brother has never been catcalled in his entire life and of course it's not because he's not cute it's not because he's not drawing attention i mean the man is six foot six but the world is afraid of him in a way that they will never be of you and i which is silly because my brother is not a fighter and i will cut you (laughs) and you also do it in louboutins so right i would be scared I would be scared of you in stilettos. As you I have been fucking scared of should you be. in stilettos. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They are Just, shanks. I've seen you shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's my 
it's and it's sad. It's sad that like every woman I know has some version of your story or my story or some realization where instead of being like, wow, uh, like the pussy power that comes from being like a cis woman in the world and like how powerful and badass that is to be like i can make people in my crotch but instead we're just like you speak for yourself <laughs> but like you know there should be like an empowering thing but no like every woman i know was like bummed out when they started their period got scared when like men started paying attention to them and like it felt nice but also was scary our bodies were policed like just not good and yet like yeah i don't know sucks sucks real hard i was never i was never taught about my period um until i had it and so i've been very dedicated to teaching my children all about their bodies and like i've received calls from like daycare where they're like they keep mentioning their vulvas and that's not a word we use i was like that's the name of it they're like what do you mean it's vagina i was like it is not vagina. Yeah. It is not vagina. And they're like, oh, and so I don't get calls anywhere. But I've been telling the girls about periods forever. And when my eldest daughter was like, wait, every month? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, for how long? I was like, for like 50 years. She literally threw her head back <laughs> and was like, no, <laughs> and just started crying. I was like, it's okay, baby. Like, we'll get through this. And then I was like, you don't have to have it if you don't want to. And I wish, I wish I had been told that, that it's like, you don't have to have it. You can take medicine for that. Yeah, yeah. You can fix this. But she was just like, no. And you know how dramatic it is. Oh, like, and I, I mean, I a theater that, kid at heart. It's honest. Yeah. She is. She is, but yeah. So imagine her sweet little pudgy little face. Just no. Oh my god! And I'll never forget it. It was hilarious. I and love. just the the truth. <laughs> yeah, and like even when you, because I was lucky. I mean, I was mortified because I was like very, very, very shy. But my mom's very open about like our bodies and sex and menstruation and all that stuff. So I had all of the information, but it still horrified me. But I remember when my mom first told me, I was so relieved because in my head, I had the opposite problem as, as your daughter. In my head, I thought I had, and now I know I have dyscalculia, which is dyslexia of numbers. So that's probably what happened. But in my mind, you only <laughs> didn't have a period one week a month. Oh no, I mean- <laughs> For those of us with endometriosis, that's kind of what it is, but that's And I remember because, like, still to this day, swimming is one of my favorite things in the entire world. And, you know, obviously tampons existed. But as you know, being a child of the 80s, like, it was like, only whores use tampons. It's like what you were raising. Oh, yeah. If you you use a tampon, you'll lose your virginity. Yeah, exactly. So in my mind, I'm like, you bleed 28 days out of the month. (laughs) <laughs> and you can't swim when you bleed oh my god i'm never going to be able to swim and then i just went down Aww. this rabbit hole of like but how do olympians do it what is happening what is going on anyways it was like a whole thing so my mom told me uh, my biggest relief was like oh it's only a week <laughs> <laughs> i had like set Aww. the bar so low for myself that i was like we um yeah i mean I being a it. woman in the world is wild which is why i love international women's day so much because i feel like it creates an opportunity for these kinds of conversations about like your gender which 
people make the center of your identity, but you don't actually ever really get to think about. And also because International Women's Day just outs so many pieces of shit. Like men who are like, what about Men's Day? Or people who try to get build empathy with men around like, what if that was your daughter? What if that was your sister? Like all that bullshit that I'm always like, nope. Um, So I feel like International Women's Day just creates a lot of opportunity for greatness. But in the context of the podcast, it's also great because... As listeners know, any excuse I can come up with to consume queer content, I fucking will. And this year's no exception. Hit me. Well, for those of you who didn't listen last week and didn't get the preview, one, shame on you. AKA, no shame. We we subscribe to Brene Brown here. Um, But... (laughs) Uh, I got an ARC. So I got an advanced reader copy of a book that's not even coming out until April. So you are getting a sneak peek at a book that is not even available until October. Sorry, April. So April 5th, so in about a month or so, a delightful little book called She Gets the Girl Drops. And it is YA and it's queer as shit. And it's written by Alison Derrick and Rachel Lippincott. And... listen to this rachel is the co-author of the bestseller five feet apart do you remember that book that was made into a movie no no okay so it's ya and sorry i just find it hilarious in retrospect because it was called five feet apart and it was written about two kids like two teenagers that have cystic fibrosis who because they have immuno immuno they're immunocompromised have to stay away from people um, and they have to then stay away from each other without making each other sick. And like the whole, when the book came out, it then became a movie with, um, like all these, you know, Cole Sprouse and all these famous people in it. And people were just like, wow. And then like a couple months Ooh, later, we pandemic. all had to stay six feet away from each other because of Iman. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just kind of funny in retrospect, like the, the premise of the book, but yeah, so five feet apart, I mean, it's a huge bestseller and then it was made into like a huge Hollywood film. Um, and yeah, it was about two young people. So it was like YA romance. Um, and so Rachel was one of the co-authors of that. And she lives, she currently lives in Pennsylvania with her wife and her dog, Hank, which I love. Cause my friend, oh. my friend Andrea has a fucking dog named Hank and he is the fucking best. And I'm obsessed with animals having people names. So Rachel lives in Pennsylvania with her wife and her dog, Hank. She crow with this book with Rachel. Oh, sorry. With her wife. Yeah, so Allison. Sorry, I described Allison first. Rachel is Allison's wife. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Really? Did a fucking queer couple write a book about queer women? Fucking right they did. Oh, I love this. I love it. Um, so she ran her own food truck. But then realize, oh right? I know. And then realize. This is our dream. I know. Could be us. It could be us. It's like she gets the girl and I'm like, and my dreams. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Allison was a writer, you know, wrote Five Feet Apart, um, met Rachel. Rachel had a food truck and then realized that she preferred telling stories over slugging cheesesteaks in Pennsylvania And so she decided that she was going to write, this is her first book and she co-wrote it with her wife and their dog, Hank. And I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. Is the dedication to Hank? No, but it fucking should be. It should be. (laughs) 
Hank for president. Oh my god. Um, I think we should include a photo of the Hank that I know and love in our post for this. Um, oh done, yes. done. We're doing it. Um, especially because when Hank was a wee one, because my friend Andrea, shout out to Andrea, who does listen to the podcast. Um, her when he was a puppy, little puppy, she would put little children's feminist protest t-shirts on him and there's a picture somewhere i'll have to dig it up of him um in his little this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt holding the a placard at a take back the night rally in his mouth it is the most precious thing i've ever seen in my entire life and you know me i'm picky about dogs but hank whoo what a sweet sweet angel and he's still around he's like an old sweet um what's those muppet dogs he's like a labradoodle he looks like a Muppet and he's a fucking sweet Aww. angel baby. So that's what I picture as Allison and Rachel's dog, Hank, because, you know, obvious reasons. So obvious. usually how we do things on the show is I describe the plot of my book and then we do a little reenactment of it. But because it's an advanced reader copy, I don't want to give everything away because I really want you to pick up this book. And I will say from the top, love this book. It's so great. And I wish it existed when I was young because it is so great at naming the, you know, even in 2022 that like being queer and young is not easy. And, um, you know, on top of just like being a teenager is hard. Being a teenage girl is really fucking hard. And then you add in being gay and it's like complicated. Uh, and so it's just like very validating about everything. It feels very true to my experience of being a young queer person um and just like trying to find your way in the world and just like the subtle things like people assuming um so you know there's a scene where she stumbles upon like a sex ed class and uh in her residence like they're just like teaching safer sex and she was like oh an icebreaker event and shows up and then just like sees bananas on the table and and, like a bowl of mints and she's like okay cool and just like grabs the banana and like sits down and then everyone starts staring at her and she's like what the fuck and then the instructor (sighs) comes in and it was like those aren't mints they were condoms and those bananas were not made to be eaten (laughs) (laughs) because she doesn't fuck men she's like it never even occurred to me (laughs) Um, and just like shit like that that i just find like delightful because one it was very funny but also like yeah that's what we mean by heteronormativity is the assumption that like everyone on this residence floor needs to know how to put a condom on a dick so just like all of those little details that i just thought were absolutely delightful so the book is described as she's all that meets what if it's us and i mean again you feel me renee she's all that a pivotal film in the 90s where all she did was wear glasses and overalls and they were like look at this fucking nerd and then they took her glasses off and then all of a sudden freddie prince jr was like hubba hubba so, oh yeah, I mean, story of my life. No. <laughs> classic trope from the '90s is like the glow up, right? Like you want to get someone, but you get a glow yeah. up. So the premise of this is that Alex starts off as a bartender at the Tilted Rabbit, um, and she's working there. She's just finished high school, and she's working there to make money to pay for rent and tuition because her mom is a drunk her dad is not around and alex has kind of built up a really tough exterior as a result of being mortified that her mom is a drunk and that they don't have a lot of money and her dad's not around and so she really just tries to stay aloof and not let people in because of shame and um she is 
leaving for college, really excited, scared to leave, um, in part because she's leaving her partner behind. And, but then, like, and her partner's going on tour and her partner asked, her partner's a musician and said, like, do you want to come on tour with me? And Alex is like, no, I really, I really, really want to go to school. And they end up having this big blow up the night before she leaves because the partner is like, I think you're just a commitment phobe. I just think you don't want to do long distance because I think you can't handle commitment because I think you can't handle monogamy. Um, And they had this huge fight and her partner is like, you know, you're always flirting with everyone all the time, but you don't take this seriously. And like, I really love you and I actually care about you. And Alex is like freaked out and leaves in a huff and then realizes uh, I leave tomorrow on a Greyhound bus to go to university and I have literally no place to stay tonight. And she starts going through her phone and realizes her phone is just full of white night stands and women she literally labels as like brown haired chick from Starbucks, like just has no real friends, no real people close to her. So she's like, fuck, I got to change my life when I go to university. Um, Meanwhile, also heading to that university is Molly. And Molly is a queer nerd with deep social anxiety who is BFFs with her mom in part because she's just too afraid to approach people to make friends with them. And she has this deep crush on this woman named Cora. Except she's never actually spoken to Cora before because she's too socially awkward to do so. So Molly has it in her head that she's going to go to university and reinvent herself. She's going to find herself. She's going to find her people. She purposely chose a residence room that shares a room with someone else. So there's kind of like a built-in friendship or a built-in connection. And she's like, I'm going to do it, mom. I'm going to make friends and I'm going to be a whole new person. And her mom's like, you got this. But then she gets to campus and realizes... I was put in a single room, which everyone else, myself included, would be like jackpot. Um, Cause like sharing what? a fucking bed with another person. But she's like, fuck, like, how am I going to make friends? I'm just too awkward. Well, doesn't she run into some people from her high school who do recognize her and are like, Hey, uh, and they're like, Oh, Hey, there's this really awesome party happening tonight. You should come. And they kind of mention some of the other people that are going to be there, including Cora. So she's like, Ooh. this is it. This is my chance to be friends with make friends and also make a move on Cora. I'm going to do it. And she then, um, decides whether or not to go to this party. Um, her brother who lives in town is like, you got to go college parties are messy and ridiculous and they're not safe, but they are the best way to meet people. And thus begins the journey where you have Alex on the one hand, who is trying to reinvent themselves as someone who has their shit together, who doesn't have to talk about their drunk mom, who wants to prove to their ex that like, no, I can be in a committed relationship. I can get this together. I'm going to stop being a flirt with everyone. I'm going to just like be a serious person that you're going to want to date because I really do love you. And then Molly is like, I'm not going to be so introverted and socially anxious. I am going to be out and about. And so when they show up at the same place and then discover that, hey, we both have we're both queer and trying to change ourselves to get other people to like us, AKA my ex. And in Molly's case, this woman I've never spoken to in my entire life, they realize, Hey, let's team up. You Alex are a womanizer who can get laid at any point. I 
have no skills in that regard. So how about you help me help glow me up and I will get this Cora woman to date me. And Alex is like, cool. You help me kind of be a little bit more straight laced, kind of have my shit together. And then my ex will want to get back together with me. Booyah kasha. And there we go. Now, can we assume? Okay. As if two lesbians that are single can just hang out and not hook up. Ding, ding, ding. And so <laughs> we all know where this is going. And is it predictable in that sense? Kinda. Do I care? Not at all. Nope. <laughs> it is such a lovely little journey of these two people trying to, you know, be... Like, yeah, be who they think the other person wants them to be so that they can not be alone, right? They don't want to be alone uh, for different reasons and to come at it from different perspectives. But ultimately, they're just lonely people that are scared to be themselves. And so they lean on each other to be each other's selves and realize, oh, shit, girl, I think you're the one I like the whole time. Oh. It's delightful. It's so sweet. It is a great read, super well written, and it feels like I said very authentic to the experience of being like all of the things, you know, not just like being queer and young, but also yeah, being the first person in your family to go to university, having that imposter syndrome that I'm not good enough to be here. I don't have the money to be here, so I'm working whereas, you know, I'm with other people who maybe their family have sons of money and they don't have to work and like all of those dynamics felt very real to me. Um, funny, very funny dialogue was really great. There's no like cheesy, like after school special type stuff. Um, just delightful. So I highly recommend, even if you're an adult, like I'm not usually into YA, honestly, and it's not a judgment thing. It's just like not really my thing. Um, but certainly I would encourage other adults to read it, but also like if you have a young queer person in your life, fucking buy this book. Like you owe them that. <laughs> Oh, I will be. <laughs> oh, so yeah, it's called She Gets the Girl by Alice and Derek and Rachel Lippincott. And they are a fucking wife and wife team with a dog named Hank. Mm. And the book drops April 5th. And uh, you should check it out. I will check it out. Yeah. And our oh, reader should absolutely so check. Right? It was so it was so lovely. Like, I just was smiling so many times when I was reading it. And I just thought, like, oh, God, this is great. This is so great. And like I said, like all of the, like there's serious elements to it about serious social issues, um, you know, like sexual harassment and like how it's egregious in any case, but especially when you're queer, it's even more like, dude, I cannot emphasize enough how uninterested I am in you. And like, there's a part where like at one point someone's like roommate thinks that like she's trying to steal their boyfriend and she's like, I cannot emphasize enough how much I do not want to fuck this man. Like all of those like dynamics and like, it's Yeah clearly you know how so many of the books that we read are like tear like you're like oh a man wrote this sex scene i mean that's like a whole trope online now right it's like people post like yeah. men writing sex scenes about women and how fucking terrible they are or like straight people writing queer stuff and you're like no one does this this was very obviously written by women who've been there before and i think that oh. adds a level of greatness to it so yeah so that's that was what i read this week tell me oh. so i read a uber contemporary like it doesn't even come yeah. out till next week. Um, you read Feminist Canon, so hit me. What'd you read? I read Fear of Flying <gasps> by Erica John. Oh, wait. <sighs> you did not 
I did. I read all of it. I love (laughs) this for you. Oh, readers and listeners, you are in for a treat. Hit us, Renee. Now, have you read it? Uh, Like a gajillion years ago. Okay. So it's from 1973. It's uh, Erica Jong's first notable work. Erica Jong is described as being incredibly important. This book specifically to the second wave of feminism. And reading that, I could see that. It's extremely subversive in parts. Um, but it's still, re- it, 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 it reads of the times, right? Mm-hmm. It, it does oh, read it's of the times. very dated. Yes. <laughs> yes. Erica Jong is a, a Jewish woman, but she's very white, very blonde. And this book is, it's meant to be fiction, but it's very much, um, you know, categorizing moments in her life. So fear flying our main character isadora is on a plane with 117 psychoanalysts going to vienna and the reason this is happening is because in the 1940s 50s 60s 70s everything was about psychoanalysis people didn't even take a shit in the morning without getting (laughs) analyzed like it was just everything it was everything if you love <laughs> literature or movies from that era, like I do, like Valley of the Dolls style, like anything, it's all about psychoanalysis. Insofar that I, I spit on CBT because I'm like, I just need to be analyzed. You know, like that's kind of where I'm at. So <laughs> she's on a plane with 117 psychoanalysts. Her husband, in fact, is a psychiatrist himself. Now she has a fear of flying. She's she's got a phobia of it and her husband who does psychoanalysis is there amongst other analysts she has had and she is also a bit of an analyst herself she's kind of thinking about her life thinking about her time with these different analysts and them in like all of their misogyny kind of chalking up her issues to being like you want to fuck your dad all right you know that's the whole book um but they're going to Vienna because I guess during World War II, um, all of the Jewish analysts got run out of Germany. Um, and so now Vienna's like, come back. We're opening a Sigmund Freud museum. Come and see it. So that's why they're going to Vienna. Um, now, Isadora is 29 years old. She's been married twice. And she is looking for what she calls a zipless fuck. And a zipless fuck is a really passionate, brief, anonymous encounter with somebody who wants that exact same thing, a brief, anonymous encounter. She doesn't enjoy being married, um, but she loves her husband, even though he's like shitty, um, but they're good in bed together. So she sticks around. Um, (laughs) And so a lot of the book is spent kind of unpacking things like, you know, you know, why aren't women more encouraged to use their rage instead of seductiveness to get what they want. And like, it openly talks about how the main characters had an abortion. It talks about using diaphragms. It talks about, you know, not wanting to be married and not wanting children and things that would have been very like scandalous, I think for this era. So I could see why, um, it was so seminal. (laughs) I can see why it was so important and would have made a lot of women who read it 
question their place in life. But our main character can't seem to function or have any sort of identity if she doesn't have a man in her life. And she's constantly riddled with like guilt about something or other. And it's usually tied to a man. So her first husband literally is schizophrenic. Um, and she's like really taken with him because she's like, he's just so smart. He's so smart. Um, and then he literally strangles her to the point of blackout. Um, and she's like, but what did I do wrong? And it really left a bad taste in my mouth. But I think that was the point was that she was talking about these like experiences that were probably really common and not talked about. And then meanwhile, kind of countering it with like, well, Simone de Beauvoir says like that kind of stuff. So she makes it to Vienna with her husband. She's kind of unhappy. And then she meets this guy called Adrian Goodlove. And Adrian Goodlove is also a psychoanalyst (laughs) and he's kind of gross, but she's into it. And so he also seems to catch on that. Like she's just looking for an encounter. And so he starts like pursuing her. Um, And meanwhile, her husband, like, gets really into her whenever he realizes that this other guy's hitting on her. And that's how the book goes on. It's just her feeling guilty, but still wanting to hook up with Adrian. And then Adrian being, like, incredibly impotent anytime that she shows, like, power into, like, reciprocating or or pursuing him. Um, And then he just kind of blames her um it's a big it's a story about the male ego in a big way and like a woman's identity um so she eventually like leaves her husband in vienna and like goes off with adrian where they're like camping on the side of the road all throughout europe and he's like i'm gonna i'm gonna teach you to be an existentialist and live in the moment and unpack your shit and then at the end of it he's like okay well i'm gonna go meet my wife see you later and she's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I'm stuck in France. And uh, she has to, like, be independent and, like, just shake all of these fears that she has very suddenly. Um, and then she finds out that, like, her husband might still be in Vienna. And she ends up finding him by accident. And the book ends with her just in his tub. <laughs> now. Um, I... There were moments where I loved this book because I was like, fuck yeah, this is empowering. Other times where I'm like, you are such a privileged, awful human being. I hate listening to you write. (laughs) It's just, it was so bad. And then I was like trying to Google Erica Jong. And then there's like, I guess she and Roxanne Gay were doing a thing in 2015. And like, Roxanne's like, you know what day it is? And everyone's like, it's Beyonce's birthday. And they're like, yeah. And then she's like, well, actually, did you know that like these other black poets and musicians paved the way for Beyonce? And everyone's looking at her like, thanks, Erica. Thanks for that. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And then like, they're like asking questions. And Roxanne's like, we need intersectionality. And Erica John's like, what is that? Like, it's, a, ugh, it's very, you know. I, here, I want to talk about the characters in the book. Please do. Okay. So the men in this book are disgusting animals. Um, aside from her 
schizophrenic husband who strangles her to the point of death practically um and her her chinese american husband who's like we have problems but we should probably talk to the analysts first before we do anything she mentions this other character quite often whose name is charlie and charlie is an orchestra conductor but he doesn't clean his ass. What? And so she go yeah, she she goes on remarkably often about how there would be like no shit streaks no. in their bed. No. And like she's talking about all these horrible qualities in all these men, but she's like, I couldn't get enough of them. And I'm like, but that's a that's a deal breaker, Erica. You are from a well-to-do Jewish family, the Upper West Side. You don't have to stand for this. You don't have to, but that's, I'm not smart enough to give you an academic breakdown of this book. I thought it was really good. I also thought it was really boring. I thought it was really exciting, but it also made me really angry. There was tons of sex in it, but it wasn't described as like, he put his big cock inside her little tiny little little pussy like it wasn't like that it was just like he can't get it up <laughs> right and then there's like this scene where she's mad at her husband and she's in bed with adrian so she calls her husband she's like i'll be back later i'm at this address with adrian and so they're like asleep in bed and her husband bennett busts in the door and then just jumps on her and fucks her next to adrian and she's just like this is fine and i'm like what like what <laughs> yeah and she's got like these really mean sisters the book has a lot of really racist moments um and it's so clinical it's just so clinical and i totally understand that that was the point mm -hmm. that this is a woman whose entire life has been under a microscope by everybody around her that she has no identity because of this world of clinical psychoanalysis that she's just been so part of and that um you know she is just an object of affection to, to like men like she, she just they just want to fuck her all the time and that's her only sense of identity that like if, if they don't love her, she hates herself. Like that's all she's going after. And in the end, she kind of figures herself out and that's great. Um, but it, it got to the point where I was just like skipping through pages. Cause it was just her going on about like different literary people and poets and stuff. And you know, I think, I think it's really important to, feminism i think it was really important for that was not sexy no wouldn't recommend it as a ravaged love contender <laughs> um maybe if she hadn't mentioned the dirty assholes in this book i would have been better now another point i wanted to make i just i just have to say i yeah i don't know if i blacked out when i read this book again it was like close to 20 years ago but i do not remember crusty buttholes so like there's a whole character. He comes up twice and he's not, it's like in the past. She just brings him up twice and she's like, there's a part where she's like, I get that he had questionable hygiene. Uh, I get that, that I have period. questionable taste. In yeah, I was yeah, like, period. If, that, if you have, like, we've discussed this many times on the show. We are willing to be loose and fast with a lot of rules, but personal hygiene, yeah. hard, 
hard no if it's bad hard no yeah and she does mention later she's like you know she was he was probably waiting for his mom to do that like you know and and she was making the the whole freudian point that like men want to fuck their mothers Mm -hmm. and women want to like that's that was the point but as a modern woman um it was not lost on me that there is a man with a dirty butthole (laughs) just being Um, gross yeah, also, like, all these men are like, soak my dick. And I'm like, but his butthole's dirty. Yeah, and if it's, it's a dirty butthole. And, I mean, the butthole is close to the rest of the genitalia. But also, like, if your butt is that dirty, like, your dick ain't clean. Like, your dick 100%. is not clean. And, like, we're not putting dirty cock in our mouths. Women, we no. have more self-respect than that. 100%. Men, take responsibility for your buttholes. Right? Um... Now, the other thing, here's what I wanted to talk about, really. This was my takeaway from this book, more than anything, Julie. Um, I don't know when we started using the word pussy. Culturally, you mean? Because, culturally, like, when did we start using pussy in literature over other things? Because in this book, and I started taking count, she writes the word cunt 22 times. Ooh. And there's never pussy, there's never vulva, there's never, there's nothing. It's just cunt. And they use it not only, she uses it not only to describe her pussy, but also one, the Adrian character uses the word cunt. He calls her a cunt. And at one point he's like, shut up, cunt. And she's like, oh my God, I got the vapors. Like she's all into it. And I'm like, these guys are so shitty. And in fact, this Adrian guy in the scene where he's like, shut up, cunt. He farts loudly at the table in this little restaurant in Vienna. And I'm like, this man is a doctor. Oh, this no. man is a PhD holding British gentleman who just called this woman he's trying to woo a cunt, told her to shut up and then farted loudly to assert his dominance. And I want to believe that this is satire. I want to believe <laughs> that this book was meant to represent the worst qualities of men as part of this woman's growth and development. But it didn't read that way. I think you would have to be able to break down this book in in more time than I did um, to to make those connections because it's just a woman. It's just like, are these the only men that were available yeah during the 70s and so i actually called this book um boomer humors <laughs> like humors like you know in the way they used to in the sec- the sec- humans humors like their body yeah. humors like the humors of the phallus like that stuff <laughs> so i call this book boomer humors i wrote it down um i was rooting for husband bennett frankly um <laughs> of all the men Bennett, you know, he was a little shitty, but I think his behavior as as psychology would grow and change, I imagine that he would stay on top of that um, and become more evolved, perhaps like leave the psychoanalysis for CBT and just be a better person, read some Brene Brown. <laughs> um, but since this is the 70s, I don't know if, if he would still be practicing when um, in the, you know, in the last 10 years. Uh, didn't, didn't love this book glad i read it would would probably like to reread it with maybe like an academic lens i think that would be really interesting uh, but as just like a book to read um uh, 
I I wouldn't recommend it yeah. to anybody outside of the 1970s. I do remember that part. Like I do remember it's like when I read um uh oh my god, oh, the feminine mystique by uh Betty Friedan. <laughs> Same thing. It's like pivotal um you know Susan Flutie's backlash, even the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir. Like these are like very like you said seminal core important text to understand feminist history but like do not age well and not mm. particularly well written um but yeah are you gonna read us an excerpt so i'm actually gonna read something really meta oh because i'm gonna read a part where they're reading a romance novel <laughs> it's like ravage love inception <laughs> yeah so i'm gonna give some context just because um i can't read before it because it's really racist Ooh, like i cannot stress that enough it's not okay that it was the 70s oh yeah no it's okay? yeah this book is racist it's very racist i don't care that erica jong was married to a chinese man or that her character is married to a chinese man every opportunity to be racist she was Okay, mm-hmm. she she should not have had the privilege to sit down with Roxanne Gay. But I digress. <laughs> so, right before this, she is in, um, I think, like Lebanon. Um, her one of her sisters is married to um, a Lebanese man, and they're visiting. She's about to have like her seventh baby or something. And as she's staying there, she's going to bed. Her brother-in-law comes in and just like immediately starts making a pass on her, and like is like going to like force himself on her until she like yells and he's like, Oh shit. And he runs away. So she's going to see her other sister. She has two other sisters who are staying in a house down the road to like, tell them what happened. Um, so that's what I'm going to read. Okay. Okay. So <clears throat> here we go. Was I a prude? Why such a moral dilemma over a lousy little blowjob? Because if you start blowing your sister's husband, the next thing you know, you'll be blowing your mother's husband. And good grief, that's daddy. But your shrink insists that it's daddy you really want. So why is having him so unthinkable? Maybe you should blow daddy and be done with it. Maybe that's the only way to overcome the fear. I sneaked past the front room in Aunt Simone's house, past Aunt Simone and Uncle George, who were both snoring musically, and found Chloe and Layla sitting up in bed together, reading aloud from a porno paperback called Orgy Girls. On the bed were about ten other books with titles like Teenage Incest, Swapping, Family Style, My Sister and Me, My Daughter, My Wife, Cherry Willing, The Long and the Short, Puda Cat Lane, Entered in All Places, A Trip Around the World, and Letters of Lust. Layla was reading aloud from a particularly poetic passage. Neither of them took any notice of my arrival. His hips began to move faster, Layla read in a histrionic voice. As the urgency of climax approached, I felt his body pounding against mine. His stiff prick was filling every inch of my womanly canal, and I could have screamed with pleasure. I felt the explosion starting within me, and my cunt juices began to flow down the length of my love passage, lubricating his hot pole and letting it slip more easily. Why was it the people in porno paperbacks were never bothered by any of the scruples which bothered me? They were nothing but enormous sexual organs thrusting blindly at each other in the dark. Could you cut that stuff off for a while and talk to me, I demanded. Isn't this too much, Layla said, waving the book. Listen, kitties, we've got the real thing on our hands, so you can just put your porno paperbacks aside and lend me your dirty ears. Layla looked at Chloe, and Chloe looked at Layla, and they both began to laugh as if they knew something I didn't. Well, what is it? 
They kept laughing conspiratorially. Come on, you idiots, tell me. You're going to say Pierre tried to seduce you, Layla said, still giggling. How the fuck did you know? Because he tried it with me, she said. And me, said Chloe. You're kidding. We are not kidding, Layla said. Would that we were. So what happened? Well, I laughed him out of bed and Chloe says she did too, but I'm not entirely sure I believe her. You bitch, Chloe yelled. Okay, okay, I believe you. And what do you mean you just stuck around here after that happened? Well, why not, Layla said nonchalantly. He's pretty harmless. He's just a bit horny because Randy spends her entire life in an advanced state of pregnancy. A bit horny? You call that a bit horny? I call that incest. Oh, God, Isadora, you really are too much. That's just your fucking brother-in-law. It isn't really incest. It isn't? I think I was disappointed. It scarcely counts at all, Layla said contemptuously, but I'm sure you'll find a way to make it seem more lurid on paper. Layla hated my writing, even then. I'll work on it, I said. And that's a little passage from Fear of Flying by Erica Jong. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I read it because they're reading, that was the sexiest part, was her reading the sexy part from that book. Um, I will say, thinking more about your point about the the like use of a hard C constantly, I do think that was you know very much a thing of the time. Like remember in like the '90s when the book Cunt came out and it was like very um, provocative. I mean, it's still a hard C is still a hard C, and there's still a lot of people, including women, who don't like that term. But I totally see now how it would have been seen as like political to use that word in particular, but. As I'm fairly certain I've said it before on the show, I'm a big believer, whether it's pussy or cunt, you have to pick a lane in that you either use it yeah. to describe the body part or as an insult, but you can't do both. Yeah. And you know what? I, for the longest time, didn't like the word pussy. I, don't, I didn't like it. And I would never dream of using the word cunt in any context. Um, but Ravage Love has taught me that pussy happens. <laughs> It's just the word. It's just the word. I prefer pussy to cunt. And I, I don't, I, I was taken aback by how often the word cunt was used in the context of vagina in this story. Yeah, that's fair. Like I would, I've never, I've never read it that much unless I was reading a book between like a bunch of British dudes. <laughs> yeah. Or like a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like I've never read a book and I don't, I don't think that it was especially avant-garde for her to use the word that much it felt lazy oh <laughs> fair but, but i don't know what another word would have been for that time yeah but i also take offense <laughs> to boomers being this sexual uh i don't i don't want to think of my parents being like that like, first and foremost, my parents are white privileged people, but they weren't so privileged that they could go running around Europe just, like, for a lark, yelling content. <laughs> um, you know, so this this book is not relatable, I think, is... I mean, it's relatable in that the men are pigs and disgusting, like... Yeah, you're like, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. But I could not at all relate with this woman who was, like, way too smart um, and just, like way too like full of self-hatred i mean i hate myself but yeah, not that much there's a limit yeah 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 so also like she really hates german people and i found that part actually really interesting because in the book her 
family fled Nazis and some of her family went to concentration camps. And I thought that that was a, that was a really interesting thing is that she's in Vienna coming back from after, you know, because they're welcoming psychoanalysts back that they drove out during the third Reich. And she's really struggling being around the German people behaving as though like nothing had happened. And that was super interesting to me because I was like, oh, wow, I never thought about that because I've never personally experienced that oppression. But that's very interesting. And I would have liked to have learned more about that feeling. But instead, uh, the ball just kind of kept rolling away from the cool feminist stuff into disgusting men. So... And then the book kind of ends with her finding her her power because she has a period in a hostel. Oh, like, I mean, oh, you're relatable. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know, not spicy. Um, I would recommend literally any sex toy that would keep this character away from the disgusting men in the 1970s. Ooh, no, the um, sex toy of this one is going to be a bidet. That's what oh, we're she. In- she was using plenty of a day. There's a whole bit in the book about the toilets of Europe. Like the to- toilets of the world. She has like a whole like thing about it. I mean, yeah. fuck. Here she is talking about Freudian stuff. And I'm like, that's a lot of butt stuff. A lot yeah, of butt and stuff. She, I could tell you that in the 1970s, German toilets didn't have water in them mm. right away. And that... Um, the the French had like the bidets according to this book only, which I was like, can you poop in a bidet? I don't I don't think you should do that. <laughs> um, and then yeah, it just she has a whole thing about to- and I was like, tell me more about this this toilet theory. Um, but then it just went on about how much she dislikes other cultures. So um, there are two other books about this particular character that she wrote throughout the seventies and eighties. Um, I don't know if I want to read them. <laughs> I certainly after, don't. Yeah, after kind of seeing her little interview with Roxanne, I'm like, I don't really. Yeah, we'll leave we'll leave her work back in the 70s where it belongs, honestly. We're certainly not going back to that space next week because next week we're taking things in a whole different direction. Next week, we're doing St. Patty's Day. Nice. Yes! But I'm ready. I'm ready. I've always been ready for this moment. I mean, St. Patty's Day does not disappoint. And by that, I mean it's nothing but disappointing in a North American context. But when it comes to themes of which there are nothing but choices, (laughs) um, the Irish is up there. So we're going to have something Irish related next week. Next week's episode. Um, But yeah, don't read Erica Jong. Do read She Gets the Girl by Rachel Lippincott and Alice and Derek. Um, Yeah. 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 No, I can, you know what? After reading this book, I I do have some wisdom born of pain and I paid the price, but look how much I've gained. Um, And I have to, I can do anything. I'm strong. I'm invincible. <laughs> I am a woman. Do you want to sing us out? I'm going to go try grow at this hell and ready. But until then, I'd like you to sing us out, Julie. <laughs> <clears throat> Ravage love. Ravage love. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Artwork for the podcast was created by Karen McKnight. 
Special thanks to Press Start to Join for production assistance. For gaming and tech news, search Press Start to Join or on social media at PS, the number two, J Show. Connect with us online at Ravage Love on Instagram and by email at ravagelove.podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.